0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroder's. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it.
1: This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Nick Hodler is joining us today on The Value Perspective. Nick is the president and CEO of ARC. If you're not familiar with ARC, it is the world's largest manufacturer of glass tableware, and the chances are you've definitely encountered one of their products in your local pub. We're excited to have Nick on the pod as ARC has been in the midst of a positive turnaround story under his helm, and as value investors, these are exactly the type of situations that interest us. Nick discussed with Juan and I how he approached the turnaround situation from his background as a management consultant and how he adopted his decision-making processes at a global company with operations in quite distinct and different markets in France, America, and the Middle East. Enjoy. Nick Hodler, welcome back to
0: the Bio Prospective Podcast. It's amazing to have you here again. I'm going to say that for those that are listening, the reason why I'm welcome, welcome you back is because I'm going to publicly apologize because we did this one time uh, some months ago and the
2: recording
0: the, uh, failed. So, this is our second attempt to get you on the
2: podcast. How are you? Fine, right, thanks. No, thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um,
0: for those that might have never heard of you before, can you provide us with a little bit of your background?
2: Sure. So I'm uh, Nick Hodler. I run uh, Arc, which is the largest glass tableware company uh, in the world. We make about uh, four million glasses a day. So glasses, plates uh, made of glass. Uh, We're based in France and have factories in uh, New Jersey in the U.S., in Ras al-Khaimah in the UAE and in Nanjing in China. Although um, our historical site, that's almost 200 years old, is is in France, and that's where about half of our production uh, is made. Uh, I've been doing I've been with Arc since uh, 2015, when um, the company was taken over by its current shareholders, and uh, it's a it's a it's a turnaround of a company that has had had some difficulties for um, for several years, starting in the early 2000s, and uh, we're working on on improving the operations and, and bringing it back to, um, to where it needs to be.
0: ARC is quite important here in the UK, right? Because uh, you will correct me if I'm wrong, but if I go to a pub and I ask for a pint, there are, there's a very high chance that the glass used uh, to serve the pint is manufactured by
2: ARC. Is that correct? Definitely. We, we, um, uh, we work in three segments. So we work in what we call consumer goods. So that's what's on, on the retail, what you'll buy in, in you know, specialty stores or, or supermarkets. So you're kind of, you know, mid-market level uh, retail. We work um, in what we call uh, B2B, and that can be it's kind of an all-encompassing term, but can include some, some food packaging. We make some candle jars. Uh, and then a big segment is uh, food service. So that's everything from pubs and restaurants from kind of the mid range to relatively high range where we have some crystalline uh, products. And a big segment of that is, uh, is the, the beer market, the brewer market where the business model in Europe at least is that we will sell the decorated pints to um, the brewer. Who will then give them to the pubs and restaurants as sort of a marketing promotion tool and and uh, incentives for them to buy uh, to buy more beer, and um, we are we're very strong in that segment, particularly in the UK. So there is indeed a very high chance that uh, the next Peroni you drink uh, in in a pub will be made from made from us, and it, it typically will say on the label right below the little pint line uh, ARC.
0: Okay, uh, we will keep an eye for it and. The other thing is I was reading about the company the other day and you guys do a lot of R&D as well. And I I, I am completely ignorant about the glass market in general. And I didn't know that you could improve the way that you drink, for instance, champagne. And you once were very nice to show me some of your new offerings in, in that regard. So how does that work?
2: We, we're, we, we spend a lot and invest a lot in our R&D, and that goes from everything from um, you know, fundamental R&D, where we're looking at the chemistry of glass uh, and inventing new types of glass, to uh, the R&D around our, our forming machines and our processes, and then a lot on the, where we get towards the blend of design and R&D uh, that's closer to our products. And, you know, one of our biggest successes that we've had, um, since 2015 has been on, on the commercial side and a big driver of that has been the R and D and the new product development piece, um, Arc had for, for over a decade, been very poor in terms of innovation and, and novelties. And, um, one of our core parts of our strategy is innovation you know our, our motto is uh, innovative glass for a better world and the first piece innovative is a big piece of it we have um, since 2015 invented three new types of glass you know people invent a new type of glass maybe every 15 years and the fact that we invented three in the last few years is quite impressive we make um, uh, glass what most people think about as glass as sort of a transparent Glass, but we also make a type of glass that is white that we call opal. You make a lot of plates out of, out of those kind of products. And we invented a new way of coloring these plates uh, directly in the glass, so without going through a decorating step. And that's been a huge success. It's uh, also a lot cheaper to do it that way and not going through a secondary process. We invented a way to, um, a type of glass that is oven safe opal. So we make oven dishes and that is combined with our specialty Uh, Or a special forming process, which is a spinning process, which means you can make a very light, very thin oven dish that also looks quite sleek, is easy to wash and uh, is much thinner and lighter. So that's been also another success. We have launched um, crystalline, which uh, is a way to enter the the higher end of the market. So this is a, a product that has the same transparency, clarity, sound as lead crystal, but does not have lead. And that's been another huge success. And if we see today where we have the biggest mismatch between our uh, supply and demand is on, on the high-end stemware, where there is a lot more demand than our, than our capacity. And we are right now installing a new stemware line. It's a, it's a big project. It's a 15 million euro capex that's going to allow us to do another 25 uh, million pieces a year uh, of, uh, of high-end stemware. And so we're looking forward to getting that machine online uh, later this year.
0: I didn't know that you could do so much new stuff with with glass. Um, you you jump right straight into when you joined the company back in 2015. But uh, it would be nice to hear what's your background before taking over a turnaround business. And the, one of the reasons why we invited you on the show is because we want to examine and I hope that we get a chance to do it. How does one make decisions under so much uncertainty when it comes to turning around a business, which is incredibly difficult to do on a day-to-day basis?
2: Sure. So I'm going too far back. I grew up in Switzerland. I'm I'm Swiss and American, went to the U.S. for for university, studied history. Uh, And then I spent a couple of years selling uh, flavors in Eastern Europe, before doing my my MBA, so I'm an undergrad at Harvard and my MBA at Columbia, uh, and then joined uh, the Boston Consulting Group for a few years. And that was that was an extremely formative period, um, and definitely really helps me a lot in in the work I do today. I'd say what you really learn in in these kind of consulting jobs is how to simplify a problem. And you know, a lot of the the work that that I did at BCG is you, you look at some you know, extremely complex situation where um, there are so many different variables, so many issues and so many things you could do. And how do you kind of distill that into three or four key things that need to be looked at? And both from, you know, an analytical perspective, but usually people tend to know, you know, the things that need to be done, but also from a, you know, a, a communication and understanding perspective, you know, you have, how can you, make sure everyone understands and, um, uh, buys into the solutions that you have identified. And that has been, I would say one of the most useful things that I was able to bring from my, from my consulting past, uh, to, to this job. After a few years of consulting, uh, and I felt I had learned a lot, but I missed the operational side of business. I I missed making stuff. And that's why I joined ARC right after the, the acquisition. Uh, I spent three years running our Middle East business. So it was, um, we have a factory in Ras al-Khaimah, just north of Dubai, uh, which had been um, really struggling because that business was built for Iran. And uh, Arc had been you know, doing extremely well in Iran in the late 90s early 2000s. Uh, and when the Iranian market closed after the sanctions, we were left with a big factory um, with no customers. Uh, we successfully turned around that business over there today the middle east is our most profitable um, entity it's, it's small but it's still our most profitable one and uh, since 2018 or late 2018 i've been uh, i've been running the whole group
1: I guess one of the questions i, I had is your background in management consulting you basically came in as an external problem solver so you had very little relation to your clients and so much when you start working with them you could probably quite easily identify what they're doing wrong because you're not in the mix. When you moved over to Arc, how did that differ when you're, you're trying to turn around when you're operating you're from the inside as opposed to being an external consultant?
2: Well, it's much easier to give advice, you know, send a PowerPoint and, and say, see you later. Uh, not my problem anymore. When you got to actually do it yourself, that's uh, a lot trickier, but that's also what I wanted to do. And i uh, say so one of the biggest um, Challenges or, 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 or things I had underestimated is is the people management side. Uh, when you're not just you know as a consultant, you're dealing with with the facts, with the problems, a very analytical piece of of work that was you know ninety percent of my work. When you are managing a business, that becomes you know max thirty percent of your work. The rest of the rest of it is is the people management side. Uh, when that was a very steep learning curve, um, you know. Making sure people are are motivated, that the incentives are aligned, that the teams are working together, that you have the processes in place to make the right decisions. Um, and it was very helpful to spend a few years running a somewhat smaller business. So in our Middle East business is about a hundred million euros of sales. Uh, it's you know one office, uh, two furnaces that are close to each other. So it's you know easy to kind of wrap your wrap your arms around even though we have a thousand employees, they're only really, you know, if you know a hundred people well, you can really know everything um, before moving to, uh, to the group level where now I know we're, we're you know, almost 8,000 people of which 5,000 in France, which I also manage directly uh, as well as, as the group where suddenly, you know, it's, it's a lot more complex and um, you're much farther from, from the operations. so having that, that first step was very helpful uh, to be able to learn the, the, the people management side of things. And you also learn that things are a lot messier in practice than they are in, uh, in theory. And so you can make a, you know, a beautiful PowerPoint deck and say, these are the five things you got to do. But when you actually get into it, it's, you know, it's a lot trickier and you realize that you know, good enough is usually the right answer uh, instead of trying to be perfect. And especially when you have to go fast, uh, when you have to um, make quick decisions, when you have, you know, limited uh, resources, whether they're financial or or from from a people's perspective, you can't do it all. I I remember at one point as a consultant, I I, I was with a customer and someone showed me an an internal PowerPoint presentation. And it was just uh, aesthetically the ugliest presentation I'd ever seen in my life. I said, come on, guys, like, how could you... How could you dare to present to your management such a you know, disgusting presentation? Like the format makes no sense. you got different fonts, different sizes, different tables. They cover all the logos. I realized quite quickly that it doesn't really matter at all. I mean, if the content is good, you have to make sure the message is clear. But, you know, the format really doesn't matter as long as the, as the content is good.
0: Do you, do you or have you
2: used consultants over the course of the last five to six years in your new role? Um, not much uh, maybe maybe as an ex consultant i 'm a little bit allergic to consultants myself <laughs>
1: um,
2: we have We have used a fair amount of, of very of, of specialized consultants uh, you know people who are specialized in certain you know hR topics obviously i t topics uh, people specialized in certain yeah, technical aspects of the business we do use, so we have some consultants, but we have not really used any high level strategy consultants uh, or, or management consultants uh, and i don't plan to what we're seeing you know what or what i believe is that we know what we need to do or at least we believe we know what we need to do and the challenge is really in the execution and having an, an external person helping the execution i don't think it sends the right message to the empowerment of the people and to getting the change done internally by, by those who need to make it done
1: you started your turnaround, obviously, with the, the Middle East business, and uh, you talk about the people quite a bit. So you, you obviously found a, a diagnostic and a team building exercise, essentially, that, that made the turnaround successful in the Middle East. Was there anything from, from that exercise that you did when you took it globally that transferred over, or is these things quite, quite regional and people specific? So how you solve problems in the Middle East, was it applicable when you're working in France or when you're working in New Jersey?
2: There are obviously cultural differences in every region, you know, the way you can speak to people, the level of you know, directness that people appreciate or respond to best is different. One thing that I learned maybe a little bit late is that, you know, if you want to make a change in a team, make a change in the team. Uh, if, 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 you, or if you think that there's, you know, something that needs to be changed, you probably are right. And waiting is typically not a good idea and um so you know that's one thing that i that i that I learned and did apply when I moved to the group level we made we made a number of changes in uh, in the executive team and i've you know I'm, I'm very happy with the team that we have today and we're able to build over the last few years but you, you definitely do um work work differently with different people um you know, in uh, France still has a has quite um uh hierarchical mentality and I think it was at at arcs, historical culture was also very much a top-down, uh, you know, the boss is always right. And I will do what he says, uh, type of mentality, which, um, has advantages in the sense that you can get stuff done quickly because people typically obey, but I, it is not something that I believe in. I I really believe in, in team-based leadership and empowering the people because, I don't know the decisions i don't know what to do uh you know at a very macro perspective i might but it's so much more powerful to have uh the input of the people that are closer to the everyday decision makings whether it's from the customer side from the factory side from all all different parts of it and you know leading not necessarily about consensus, but having open dialogue and being able to, uh, you know, uh, to disagree and, you know, encouraging disagreement, uh, so that you can really debate ideas. Um, that's, you know, has been and continues to be a, a real challenge. Uh, you know, how can you create an atmosphere and a culture where you can create, you know, conflict, uh, but conflict around ideas, not conflict around people. And you have to build a level of trust so that people know that when I'm criticizing your idea, I'm not criticizing you. And uh, it's not because I don't like you or because I think you're an idiot. It's because I just don't agree with your idea. And um, that works maybe a bit better in, uh, in an Anglo-Saxon you know, culture, less so in, in, in a French or um, Indian mentality or, or Middle Eastern, because most of our employees in the Middle East are from the Indian subcontinent. Same thing in China, it's culturally more difficult to to put that in place, but I think it is very important. It's not a democracy. We don't all vote and, and all agree. In the end, you need to have someone who decides and you know moves forward, but you need to be able to bring all the different ideas and perspectives on the table and debate them in order to have in order to come to the right decision.
0: That's that's really interesting. So from a cultural perspective, how have you in the past or how did you go about trying to make people embrace that culture of sharing ideas and putting themselves up for that idea to be criticized and maybe not going forward, especially in cultures like you, you just mentioned before that are not used to
2: that kind of mentality? It takes time. Unfortunately, it's not something you can just decide and say, now this is how it's going to be. The biggest factor I believe is trust and you can't mandate trust. You have to make sure people, you know, work together and trust each other. So spending time together as a management team, going even on, you know, one day, two day retreats, small things, don't have to do anything you know, extravagant, but spending time together, um, spending, uh, moving some of the offices around so that the team is physically closer together so that you see each other more. We had in some places, especially in France, you know, it's such a big site that we have people that are spread out across multiple buildings. And. You know, bring people a bit closer together. Spending some time together is is important. Being, you know, being explicit about it. You know, saying and repeating. You know, I want us to disagree, or asking someone. You know, who is might. You know, not being expressing his or her opinion, and you know that. You know, maybe you see in their, in their mannerisms, or or you know that they might disagree. We'll say, well, you know, what do you think about this? You know, call people out, ask people. Well. Why would we think this is a bad idea? You know, what would be the counterarguments? So in our executive team meetings, when we have a big decision, you know, we might all think we agree. We'll say, okay, stop. We all think we agree. What would someone think? Uh, you know, if we were to disagree, what would be the counterarguments? And sort of force those kind of decisions um, is are all you know small things that help transform this culture.
0: This is a podcast about how to make better decisions when dealing with uncertainty and with that in mind, what is the hardest thing about turning around the business and how do you prepare yourself for making the type of difficult decisions that are required so that you
2: maximize the chance of success? That is, that is a, a, a big question and probably a reason we have a whole, a whole podcast with multiple episodes to answer that one. But. Um, but I, I think that resource allocation is, is one of the biggest challenges. Um, managing to, you know, you need to move fast, you need to, you need to know where you're going, but that is almost the easiest part. You know, normally, if you get into a turnaround situations because you have an idea, you have a plan, you know, the reason why you invested or you wanna get into this is because you, you know what you want to do. Um, but then typically you're faced with reality is that you have no time, you have no money, you have not enough people, and uh, so how, you know, what do you do first? And if you do, and by definition, that means what do you not do first? And that, you know, what do you do first might sound easier, but if you turn around saying, what, what do you have to postpone? What do you have to say no to? And that is, um, that is a very difficult uh, part of a turnaround is, uh, is to be able to, to set those priorities and then, and then change them and change them in a way that uh, doesn't disrupt the the flow of 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 all these projects you know some things can be you know easily rescheduled especially when you're talking about a heavy industry like ours you know some projects take months even years so launching a project and then two months later saying yeah actually you know what we're not gonna do this anymore that can be massively disruptive and so Making those decisions uh, fast enough in a most in an agile enough way, as I said earlier, accepting sometimes good enough uh, uh, so that you don't you know uh, don't need to get to perfection and and to move forward quickly. I think are are the are the keys to to managing a good turnaround.
0: Linda, you mentioned the past, that well, the key issues that you found at ARC. Was the fact that you had, from a human capital perspective, two different pots of talent. You had either people that had worked in Arc for a very long time, and maybe potentially never worked before anywhere else, and people that had just joined Arc outside of uni or were ex- extremely young. But you didn't had that team in the middle, and you found that as one of the most challenging
2: aspects that you needed to cover. Is that is that the fair? It, it is. It's, it's particularly true in France. Uh, so our, our French operation um, went from about eleven thousand employees in the year two thousand to under five thousand employees in twenty fifteen, um, when when uh, when the new shareholders took over, and during those fifteen years. Um, you know, one of the reasons that 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 um, you know, so many people left is because our opened factories in uh, the Middle East and in China, which was net a good thing for the group, because we need to produce closer to where we sell. Our products are not valuable enough uh, to justify being transported around the world, uh, which is a, a real competitive advantage to be producing in the middle of Europe, because we don't have to. Um, you know, deal with uh, high transport and duty costs. This was the case even before the extremely high transport costs that we see today. Um, but for, for the ARC France site, that means that a bunch of production was, was shifted away. And during those 15 years, um, the ARC did not hire anyone. And uh, it was all those people left um, on, you know, with retirements, early retirements, um, Basically, ARC paid people to leave. And um Yeah. So, so today we have that 15 year gap that is now, you know, moved up in, in, uh, in age. Um, but we have a large portion of the population that is, you know, 50 and older, another chunk that is under 30 and really not much in the middle. And that is, that is indeed a a real challenge. We have over the last two years, you know, started to, to recruit a bit more in, in that middle bracket on on the on the, you know, higher management side, uh, where it's really challenging is I'd say on, on the middle and the, and the first line management side, where um, where, where where we are filling that gap and the fact that people have, not seen practices other way, at other places, uh, have only seen how Arc does things makes makes change more difficult
0: just want to trickle back a little bit to your first position in the Middle East when you became the CEO of what was in itself uh, a small business, but it was also a turnaround business. And you were coming from, you had never worked in the glass manufacturing segment before. So you arrived at the Middle East, your objective is to turn around the business. Where do you start? What's the first thing that you do? Do you put a plan in place? Do you put a plan in place before you start? Do you start to meet people uh, before your first day on the job? Um, How do you think about it? And then, if you may, what happens when you move from trying to turn around a small business into trying to turn around a more global, bigger business?
2: So it happened quite quickly. I joined Arc in February 2015. I spent a couple of months in France at the headquarters just to sort of understand you know the overall business what was going on you know just understand the basics of the business before going to the Middle East with the group CEO at the time we had said you know plan for a three or four month overlap with the uh, exiting uh, CEO um, after about two weeks we both realized that it doesn't work you know it's, it's you can only have one boss and you can't have that much overlap so so that that remained that you know at time shortened quite a bit the fact that it was a relatively small business meant that it was relatively easy to analyze. Uh, so I had talked a little bit to people who knew this, the business uh, before going there. And the, um, the general consensus was that it was, it was a sales problem. We are, we're a fixed cost business. You know, our furnaces uh, burn a huge amount of energy and they run 24-7. You can't stop them and whether you're producing or not producing, you're using just as much energy, you have just as many people, and you know our marginal costs are, are almost negligible. It's a bit of sand and some packaging. And so if you don't have a full furnace, you're in real trouble. And I, one of the first things that I did as I was moving or before I even joined was to look for a new head of sales. Um, we found someone who was not new, but someone who had worked for Arc uh, for many years, but had left, uh, a few years prior and, um, brought him back on and we did, um, you know, a pretty massive transformation on, on the sales organization side, um, you know, things like putting in place, um, you know, higher variable pay, you know, our, our sales team had much too high of a proportion of, of a fixed remuneration. And, you know, we, we said, listen, you know, if you, you know, we're gonna actually reduce your base pay, but if you make your budget, uh, you can earn a lot more. Some people didn't like that and left, and others took on the challenge, and that was, that was one, one big piece of, of the success. We focused a lot on the product side, so we didn't have the resources in the Middle East to go into the you know, high level of innovation that I was talking about earlier in terms of R&D and glass type. It was more just on the, on the design, uh, some new glass types a lot on the decoration side, and on, we realized what our strengths were on the manufacturing side. Our Middle East entity, continues to be, uh, I would say, our best site in terms of our manufacturing capabilities, in terms of our flexibility. And we have a great tool to decorate plates, which is a good business in, in the Middle East. And when I arrived in 2015, we would launch maybe four or five new decorations per year. Today, we launch about 30 new per month. It was a complete change in our business model, really. And that implies big changes in, you know, how do we design, how do we sample, how do we work with our customers? So, you know, and and it's rather having a new collection every year, it's we're going to produce it once and never again. And, uh, so that, and a lot of those things that that we sort of, you know, either knew or, or, or pretty quickly or discovered pretty quickly, even before really starting, what we realized, what I realized once I was there, is that there's a lot of work to be done on the supply chain side as well. Even though the manufacturing was was pretty good, the way we scheduled our production, we thought about our inventory turns, our, um, uh, yeah. our, our service level was was antiquated. And you know, we've really looked into deeply into you know what is our changeover cost? How can we you know be more flexible? you know, make shorter runs, have lower inventory to free up cash and, and get much better service. And there was a lot of work that was done on, uh, on the supply chain side. That's something that I discovered once I was there. So I'd say, so, you know, come back to your question in the Middle East, it was, you know, a few things that, that were pretty obvious and that you could discover without even having to spend too much time there. And then some of the other key elements, you know, we discovered over the first, you know, uh, months, uh, that we realized this is how we need to change. Although it was a lot focused on, on the customer and on, and on how to, how to generate the volumes that were, that we needed there. When I moved to the group level, the focus was then really on France. So even though it was, yes, it was a move from, from the Middle East to, to the group, uh, one of the reasons for for that change was was to improve France. The Middle East was had improved, the U.S. was doing fine, um, uh, China was doing fine. We had a rush uh, um, a furnace in Russia at the time, which we sold in 2020, um, and that was that was doing great. Um, but uh, but France was where, where the issue really really happened. And there, there I'd say the the biggest lesson that I brought over from the Middle East was was the prioritization aspect of things. We had so so many things to, to be done in france there were so many questions so many issues so many ideas and kind of structuring that and um and putting in place a system and a process to uh, to decide what's going to happen first and what are we not going to do and how are we going to follow up and you know we put in place a, a program management office to not to manage the projects but to imagine to manage um the project management, <laughs> one level of up, but to make sure that that stuff is happening and that we are allocating resources that we're, that we're getting stuff done and we're not getting lost in all the ideas. And, and that worked well. I mean, 2019 was a good year. We met all our targets. We, the turnaround was really starting to happen. Uh, we had a great start to 2020 until, until COVID hit and obviously hurt us really badly because in a fixed cost business, if you're not selling, it's a disaster. That's a, that's
0: a good segue to my next question, which is around the fact that many systems by default, by default are built with some slack so that if when things go wrong, there is enough room to absorb the chalk and there is time to fix, improve, and carry on. But a company going through a turnaround type environment, by definition, will find itself in a position where there is less room for a margin of error. So how yeah. do you account for the probability? Even as, as low as that might be, that a tail event, such as the pandemic, which you just mentioned before, or a war in Europe, the one that we're kind of sadly going through at the moment will happen before the strategy starts to show results so that you can maximize the opportunity set for the companies at home?
2: I don't think you can. Uh, I mean, at least in, in, in my opinion, I mean, it depends obviously on, on, on the situation of any turnaround and, you know, you know some, some turnarounds might have more, more buffer than, than others. Um, what what has helped us and what uh, and the way we managed to go through this was was thanks to our good relationships with all the stakeholders, whether it's with our shareholder, with our lenders, with the French government as well. Um, um, we are we're the largest employer in Northern France, and so obviously we have um, uh, you know a, a close relationship with with the government in France. And was that were, were those good relationships with your stockholders? in place when you arrived?
0: Or was that something that you had to to work on? Because I guess in a turnaround, it has been for a company that has been struggling for some time, those relationships or
2: some of the relationships can can get strained. So uh, the company was a family owned company. The family got bought out in 2015. So the new shareholders came in for the turnaround. Part of the turnaround was linked to to the purchase of the company and um, keeping a strong level of transparency, making sure everyone understands the issues, what we're doing, what we're not doing, um, and and building that level of trust with all the stakeholders is very important because what we saw is that when things got difficult and we had these really tail events as as you talk about, if your stakeholders trust you and believe that you're the right person to be doing what you're doing, they will cut you some slack, and they will, you know, reschedule loans, uh, add more capital in one way or another. You have much higher chances of that happening if they don't understand what you're doing, if they don't necessarily trust you, or if they don't, um, you know, if they think that you're you're hiding things, or just don't even, you know, are not aware of what's happening. Uh, then the likelihood that they pull the plug is is a lot higher. So you know, we, we really try to to keep. Everyone in, in, informed, put in place strong corporate governance. Um, you know, with with our board, inform you know our lenders, our shareholders, the you know the government authorities. Everyone, yeah, to to keep the level of, of trust. It's not it's not always you know easy when when you you know you don't have good news every month, and so sometimes you don't necessarily want to share uh, the news of the month. But it definitely does help in the long term if you if you're more transparent and um, and yeah, build that trust with the with different stakeholders.
1: We were really excited to have you on the podcast because especially value investors love a turnaround situation constantly hunting for them um, just by, by by default of the style. And I think a lot of the the turnaround situations that value investors are those who are looking to inject capital in, in turnaround situations are probably examining more measurable balance sheets, or the delightful bedside reading of, of reports and accounts. But what are some some catalysts that you think people who are interested in investing in turnaround situations should look at, other than than just the numbers? Because as as we've been talking about today, it's more than just correcting it uh, from from a balance sheet mm-hmm. situation. There's a lot of other factors in play.
2: Understanding the 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 market and the the relative position of a company within that market, I think is, is very important. And that was one of the reasons why, um, you know, I believe in this turnaround and why, why our shareholder believe in this turnaround is that, uh, in, you know, I'll speak for myself and in our example, you know, we are, uh, the market leader. Um, and, you know, in 2015, we, we were the market leader, but we were sort of an aging market leader that had been losing market share and so I say, okay, well, what, why, why is that? And, you know, our analysis was that, okay, well, we had not brought any new products to the market. We had not focused on innovation. We had spent all our money on letting people go instead of investing in automation, in uh, better production methods. and um, But we still have this leading position in a market that has very high barriers to entry. It's a capex-intensive business. You can't really build a new factory without spending tens, if not hundreds of millions of euros. And you know that makes it an interesting um, an interesting situation where where uh, where you can't. Yeah. So where, where there is a story that's beyond the numbers, uh, you know, you look at the history. Yeah. Things that had not been doing well. But uh, there is between, your, between the things you could do externally and or external position and the things that could be done internally, um, looks like uh, the right kind of opportunity for, for a turnaround.
0: Nick, we are coming to an end of our um, session, and we always ask our guests two final questions. Can you share with us a book recommendation? which can be the same book that you shared with us before, or a new one, <laughs> or and an example of a bad outcome that you could explain by bad process and not bad luck.
2: I just read a, a, a sort of a thriller novel so i'm not going to give you that one but i will go back <laughs> to the one that i that i that i gave you that i that i also just read only a couple months ago which which was a uh, uh empire of pain by uh, by patrick Radden Keefe. it's the it's the book about the sackler family and and purdue pharma uh the the makers of the the opioid uh, the the painkiller oxycontin it's um it's not a turnaround story but i think it's a very Interesting story of you know process of probably bad process of how things can go seriously wrong when you have incentives that are wrong when you have um, you know uh, processes that that don't work and can lead to really you know very sad and, and pretty catastrophic results and it was it was you know a very very good book
0: and that's your example of
2: a bad of a bad um... oh sorry and, and uh, so in, in terms of, in terms of bad outcomes. You know, I, I I'm I'm not going to speak for 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 others because I'll, I'll let others talk about their own bad outcomes. You know, I I, re- I made reference to this a few times uh, earlier in the call, but I think really where where the difficulties that we had, particularly in the first few years of of the turnaround, and particularly in France, um, uh, had been on on prioritizing and getting and putting in place the right process to to execute on our ideas. Um, Having ideas is obviously critical. If you don't have any ideas, you know, you're not going to do anything, but it's almost the easy part. And if you don't have the right process in place to systematically be able to, you know, choose what needs to happen first and what has to be postponed and to make sure that you're executing on your ideas, then it's not going to work. And we launched, there were so many things to do, you know, almost all the ideas that we had were, were fundamentally good ideas, but you can't do it all at once. And um, I'd say one of the, the, the reasons for, you know, our success in 2019 and, and what's going well now as well, is that we have a much more, uh, a much better structure and process in place to prioritize, to make sure that we follow through on the execution of our ideas um, versus just, you know, launching all the ideas as fast as we can um, and, and, then, and then having a little to show for it afterwards. That's great. Nick
0: Hodler, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast and best of luck going forward for you and ARC.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.